Okay, so uh, I apologize for the, uh, some of y'all probably don't have a copy, but uh, Allison's working on those, so we'll get that under control. Now, uh, some of y'all uh, missed last week, and but we do have a, uh, we'll have a CD for you so you can catch up and things and know what's going on, but uh, last week we covered a lot of stuff, and uh, you know, if you missed that, you want to go and, and uh, look at that later. Um, but I am going to uh, review a little bit about what we did do, talk about last week. We talked about the dominant views of sexuality over a period of time uh, of church history, of Christian thought, and uh, the first time period was early Christian thought or early uh, church. Uh, the next period of time was the sub-apostolic age, and uh, the third period of time was the Reformation or the Protestant or Protestant Reformation. So we covered those three those three areas, and we found out some really interesting things, didn't we, about uh, the way they viewed things, right? The way they viewed sexuality, some of the unique uh, problems that they had with even interpreting uh, the Bible in the right way, and they came up with some interesting things. Uh, things started to come back uh, in the in the picture rightly more around the time of the Protestant Reformation, but following that time, then we have this new era that Christi Christianity is now having a clash with a new idea and a new realm of thinking, and that is the idea of the Enlightenment. And so the Enlightenment comes into, the play, into play, and all of a sudden now we've got the Christian thought, and it's not between the Christians that, 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 that the debate is. Now it's between Christians and, and other worldviews. And here we have all kinds of different things that come, come in. Modernity comes into to our understanding. Secularism is on the rise. Secularism is a concept of basically saying this is a world where God takes a back seat. Um, secular is just basically saying without God. It's not saying that just because we live in a secular world that doesn't mean that we don't pursue God, but it's the, 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 the idea of secular itself just means without God. So God gets on, goes to the side when God's always sort of in the center of thought. Now he sort of gets pushed to the side. Naturalism comes into play. And people start really talking about, you know, sex in a total different way than we would want to see it, and it begins to become nothing more than just biological functions and all these different things, and all kinds of confusion comes out of that. And uh, that was what we were trying to do last week: is give some perspective on where uh, we've gone. And uh, I don't want to take I couldn't want to take the whole time doing that, but I do want to give some kind of review to give you some understanding. Now. Modernity is what we get out of uh, the Enlightenment, and that's when we really deal with uh, naturalism and science sort of being the, the word of the day with kind of God pushed to the backseat. But then we have a reaction to that, and you guys are well aware of it, and it's called postmodernism. And it's kind of the concept of this is kind of not working. The natural perspective alone without God just doesn't work. We have a hunger and a need for something else, and then spirituality becomes is on the rise even now, but now it's the idea that spirituality is... All kinds of stuff. Eastern thought, Western thought. Let's go check it out. Let's go talk about it. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what what it is, as long as it's got some kind of spiritual concept. People want to listen. They want to talk. But there's a difficulty in that of centering uh, down into one thought. It's almost like you're in trouble if you say that there's a truth out there. But it's okay to talk about all the stuff that we've got in mind and the different spiritual concepts that are in our heads and what we what we our experiences. But if you start saying that yours, you know, is is, is the only way, so to speak. You know, obviously, as we would say, Christ is, is the, the only way to salvation. And then you get in trouble. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're not liked and you're not, you're not accepted. 
But the conversation is okay until you go there. Um, so there's a clashing of worldviews that's going on right now. And what this is leading us to is the need for apologetics. Uh, apologetics basically meaning giving an apology, giving a reason to believe. And so you have to, you really have to get to a place where now you can explain to a person why it's important that you believe the way you do and that you live the way you live. Um, it's not going to be listened to like before where people were already pre, they were prepared in a given way because the culture was that way where you could talk about Christ and they would just all of a sudden just immediately go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I need Jesus. Now you've got to kind of get to the place where you've got to create a, an understanding uh, with, with apologetics. And so... In, in essence, in some ways, we're going to kind of kind of do that in this in this in this uh, next session today here in uh, Sex and the City of God, Part Two. What was the dominant view of sexuality, though, throughout most of mo- most of um, history? What was the dominant view? The dominant view was actually uh, the traditional historical biblical view. And so we have to come to understand what is the traditional <laughs> historical biblical view. Where does it come from? Um, what what validity does it have to us? Does it ring true for us, or is it just some kind of thing that's written in there? And so we're gonna we're gonna explore where this foundation comes from. But before we get into uh, deeper discussions on on spirituality, we really have to go here, because if we don't, it's we won't have a foundation to to talk from, to discuss from. So we have to understand the biblical writings that have been the dominant view for such a long time. Now, recognize this is not the dominant view anymore. But it has been, and I'm going to say I believe should be again. <laughs> As we look at it, I think I hope that you'll come to the same agreement with me. So the Genesis Project. That's what we're going to talk about. The Genesis Project. The beginnings. The foundations of everything. If you look at this story of Genesis, I don't want anyone to hit me or tell me I'm, I'm, a, I'm a heathen if I say this, so don't, don't do it, you know, hear me out. But we have to recognize that there are certain parts of Scripture that are literal and there are certain parts of Scripture that are not. And when you look at Genesis, if you, if you understand, understand it for what it is, at least these beginnings, first two chapters, they are poetry. It's a poetic hymn. And there is much truth. There's much truth in poetry. And so, uh, you know, li- li- you know, hear me out. I'm not saying that I, I, I don't believe the Bible and this is all, you know, just something to consider. No, it's, it's all true. And there's important points that we could gather more from the poetry than if we tried to play a literal game with it. Uh, we'll get more value out of it if we see that. So I, I hope that we'll see that as we, as we go through this together. But this is a poetic hymn, and, and it has a lot of truth. It's not all literal. It carries truth because poetry carries truth. Anyone who's into poetry understands that. You'll, you'll see when you read it, there's a lot of truth involved. And it's beautiful, which is something also awesome about it. You know, when it's, if you just look at it as a didactic thing, you lose the beauty of what it's really trying to say to us and what we, what we could really gather um, here. But neither... Of these passages that we're going to cover today are going to be identical, though they're going to seem somewhat redundant. And we're going to talk about Genesis 1:27. Get into that a little bit deeper. We're also going to cover some things in Genesis chapter two. So what what it tells us about human sexuality is one thing. It tells us about maleness 
and femaleness. What a mystery. <laughs> I still haven't quite figured it out yet. My, my, my wife will tell you. But it tells us about maleness and femaleness, and this is what we really need to see. Now, I mean, it does. It has to do with creation and all that too, but I'm not here to talk about the creation. I'm here to talk about sex. And so because I'm talking about that, we're going to talk about maleness and femaleness uh, because that's important, right? <laughs> so let's get into uh, a little bit of these creation poems. Um, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 reveals many truths about God, the cosmos, and significance, what it means to be significant, what is our significance as people in the world. A lot of times what we get stuck on is God created the world in seven days, man. And if you don't believe that, then you're, you know, you're really messed up. And so I, I, I want us to see, though, that the seven days concept is, 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 a, is a way of us understanding. Because what do you and I understand? It, what's a week? What's time? How do we understand time? How do we understand any of this? It is something that we can connect to. And so this is seven days in a week, according to the way the Hebrews saw it. It's the way we see it. And so that's the way it's told. It's, it's a concept of completion. In a full uh, a period of time of seven days, which we call our week, God created it all. You know? And uh, the fact that he created it all is what's, in, is what's the key here. God created it all. So there's seven days in a week, but the real issue here is not to fight about seven days in a week, but it's to know this. God created it all, right? Isn't that the point that we're supposed to get here? The reader is not required to think mathematically when they look at this. They just see seven days, you know, it happened like this. We just get to take it in. 24 hours, we think in period of time, and so the way we look at this and the way that this poem is expressed is God created, and it breaks down how he created things in seven days. I don't think you're a terrible person if, if, you, you, know, if you go, well, you know, it happened like this and this and this and this. That's okay, that's okay. If, that's where, if, that's, if that's where you want to be. I'm not going to argue with you about it because I wasn't there. <laughs> so I can't tell you, but I think we need to be careful what we kind of hang on to sometimes and fight for and what's really not as, as big a deal, you know? So we know that God created it, and I know one of the reasons why some of the confusion comes in is you know that the, there's a passage in Scripture that says there's uh, one day is as of a thousand years to God. A thousand years is, a, is, a, is as of a day. And so if we look at that, we're like, well, what's one, is it one day, or is it a thousand years as a day? I mean, what is it? I, I don't know, but I think the important thing that we get is God created it all, and he did it the way he did it. He was in control of the whole thing. So God also rests. And this concept of rest, I think, that's here is the fact that Israel is writing, if the people of Israel are writing this because it's after it happened. You know, there wasn't a reporter that sat there and said, now today God is waking up and he's about to create the sun, the moon, and the stars. Let's write that down right now. You know, almost there. We got to discover it after the fact. And we revere the fact that God's in control of it all. And so God rests when Israel rests, so Israel recognized the value of rest. What do we learn out of that? The value of rest. Not necessarily a seventh day or whatever. It's just that one day there needs to be some rest because if God rested, then we need a rest since he is, 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 is not human and we are limited and human. So... The rhythm of Genesis 1 through 2 is much more enjoyable than reading a science book. 
than reading this literal didactic thing. Read it as the poetry. Read it as the beauty and, and let it come alive to you and see how awesome it is. You'll see discovery as you've never seen before. You'll see imagery as you've never seen before and you'll see beauty. So the creation days are in conjunction with God's spoken work and the word of the Spirit. And this is another key point that we see as we read through this. That God's work and the work of the Spirit, or God's Word and the word, work of the Spirit, are come, they come hand in hand. Because Word without Spirit does not create life, and Spirit without Word doesn't either. There is a se- sevenfold refrain in this poem, and this is another thing that we need to see in there that's very valuable. It is good. He goes through, the day ends, it is good. The day ends, it is good. The day ends, it is good. Six times, it is good. And repetition is important to see a key here. God's saying, this is perfect, this creation that I've made. It's good, and I'm proud of it. And then he goes on for a final refrain in the seventh day, and he says, it is very good. <laughs> it is very good, you know. Something at the end of the sixth day here, he says this. It's very good. Something is important about that day. Something is important about maybe what he said there. Is it, is it the culmination maybe of all of it together? And he looks at it and he leans back like a great artist that has just created this perfect painting and says, wow, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I, did, I did that. I did that. You know, I think sometimes we get a little stuffy and we try to look at God in this kind of this sort of one box way and we forget that God... He has qualities like you and I, only he's perfect. And so he has a sense of humor. And he does admire beauty in all of these things. And so he sits back and he goes, oh, it's, it's very good. I love what I did. And I love how this is going. That's important sometimes. He's not this mean, hidden away mad guy. It's just waiting to blast you. You know, when you, when you get it wrong, you know, when you do the thing and you do something the way you shouldn't do, Right? So let's move into some foundational assertions about sexuality that we see here. Chapter 2 is going to expound upon this a little bit more when we get into Adam and Eve. But before chapter 2, we just have something else. Genesis 1.27. I want to read Jesus, Genesis 1.27 for you real quick. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this tells us about our sexuality, doesn't it? There's some things about sexuality that we'll see in here that are fundamental for us to get any of the rest of the things right that we're going to talk about. We're created male and female, right? That, that's pretty profound, isn't it? Male and female. God intended us to be sexual beings. This is something that we see right away from this. Male and female also means that God intended us to be sexual beings. We naturally relate differently to our own sex than the opposite sex. So there's something different about us. Something male about males and something female about females, right? (laughs) You know, think about it. 
There's something powerful and something important about this. You, your mother has just had you, right? And the nurse is holding you, excuse me, the nurse is holding you in her arms just after she cuts that umbilical cord, you know? Not trying to get too gross, but I've been there. And so, and, you, and, you're, and you're sitting there, and in that moment they say what? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a baby! No, they don't say that. They don't say that. They say, it's, it's a girl. It's a girl. Or it's a boy. So there's something very key about those differences. And it's the way we initially come into the world. We don't come into the world a baby in the way people think of us. Yes, we're a baby, but we're a baby boy or a baby girl. And there is something key about all that. From the time that, here's a little sex, uh, sex uh, uh, um, class lesson or education lesson. From the time the sperm meets the egg, okay, there becomes a male or a female. That's it. I mean, from that point, from the very beginnings of it all, you've got that. So it stays with us our entire life. You can't change it. It stays with us our entire life. No matter what we do, you can't change it. We relate differently to men than we do to women. This is just something naturally that we, that, that we deal with within ourselves. We relate differently to each other. Um, boys, hanging out with the boys, pass gas and laugh and giggle and you know, you know, beat each other up with their fake swords and stuff. And, you know, that's the way that boys are with boys. But take the boy, grow him up into teenage years, put him in the same room with a teenage girl, and tell me if he's going to act the very same way. There's just something that's not going to work there. If we want to relate rightly to the opposite sex, there's a certain way that we've got to win him over. And... Farting and burping is not going to do that for the girls. You know? So recognize that. You know, see, we still got you know, guys giggling about it now because they still do it. <laughs> but there are some things in us, and, and we'll discover it. You know, there's some things that's conscious within us and unconscious within us that we just naturally respond to. We act like because of the fact that we were made male and female, distinctly different, yet distinctly the same, which is kind of cool. We, because we're both, we're both image bearers. See, we were made in his image. Isn't that what it said? Male and female created he them. That he made us in his image. And so male and female are both in the image of God. There is, there is a completeness in that male and female-ness. But yet, there is also a fundamental connection, too, between the two. I, I like the way the term, it's called the Imagio Dei. We are made in the Imagio Dei, the image of God. And the first mention of man in the Bible is to define humanity. It's not to define a sex. The first mention of man in the Bible is to define humanity. That's all of us. We are man, mankind. The other mention of man is a distinction, is actually to, to speak of two separate types of individuals yet the same. There's a mystery in that. I like mystery. 
The thing about this is that we are equal in value and equal in dignity together. We're equal in value and we're equal in dignity, but there's still a fundamental differentiation between us because we are not the same. We are not the same. No matter what has gone out there in culture today and what people are saying and the way that they're trying to break down the gender barriers, I will promise you this, it won't work because we're not the same. Fundamentally, that's the way we were created. And we'll see this a little, we'll see this as I'm talking, biological differences. There are biological differences between us, right? Reproductive differences. Can a man have a baby? Only in junior. And that was a fictional movie. <laughs> to see Arnold Schwarzenegger, oh my gosh, that scares me. But the point is, <laughs> a man can't have a baby. And I am thanking the Lord for that. <laughs> but women do and are the only ones that do and in fact are the ones that have that desire within themselves to have children which isn't biological in that sense so reproductively we're different we've got different plumbing okay it enables us to be fruitful and multiply right you understand this um, I know this is a college class here so with different plumbing we're enabled to be fruitful and multiply. And this shows us also that we're made for each other, right? There's something that fits there. It is made that way. God did it. Both are compatible, not just physically. God said he wanted to make a suitable helpmate. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that scripture uh, here a little bit later as we, as we look at that begin, the beginnings in Genesis. But God wanted to make a suitable helpmate. So there's, there's more than just this physical thing that makes the connection. The differences are more than biological structures of reproductive functions. Sociological researchers show that there's distinctive sexuality present in children who are prepubescent. Which is to say, before you start even thinking about sex... There's a complete. There's completely distinctive things that are already in, already there. Yes, sir. What's yes, sir. Uh, which blank are you on? Reproductive. Research has shown that there is quotation mark blank. There is distinctive sexuality present in children who are prepubescent. Do you understand? And, it, and again, just so y'all know, in this class, you can raise your hand and ask me questions. It's completely appropriate. Even if it's a question that's sort of halfway on the topic, I'm, I, I, I might, you know, respond. Okay, so um, distinct in a number of ways. We're distinct in a number of ways that isn't that is not social nurturing, which is to say, um, it's not the nurture. I wasn't raised this way, and therefore that kind of makes me what I am. The distinctions are more on the nature side. A generation tried to raise their sons in this nurture way. There was this big thing that came where it's like, let's make our sons less, you know, ag aggressive and less, you know, dangerous and stuff like that. And so we're going to start giving the guys the dolls, you know, and playing with Barbies and all these things. They tried these kind of experiments. And somehow, in the midst of this, the boys ripped the heads off the dolls 
turned the toys that were supposed to be gentle into guns. Something just seemed to be fundamentally in the boys to want to do the kind of stuff that they did. Now, I'm not saying that guns are necessarily a safe thing to be playing with. I'm just saying this is the boy thing, you know, to shoot them up, you know, cops and robbers kind of thing. Um, but this is sociologically true. I'm not making this up. This is research. This is what people have discovered. I mean, we tried it. Social scientists studying the earliest ages of man and woman, the earliest ages of girls and boys, which become men and women, realize that they act differently. They just simply act differently because they think and process differently. Naturally. Plenty of research out there to do that. You want to go out there and look it up. I know that uh, Chachi could, could vouch for me since he does sociology or graduated with sociolo sociology degree. Somehow, though, uh, there's a fundamental difference between male and female. Processing even the information that comes in and the way we apply information is different amongst males and females. So it's not just biological. There's also fundamental differences on sociological sides as well. The differences, though, aren't a yin and yang type thing. This isn't, you know, that's this happened, that's this happened, there's sort of a perfect 50-50, you know. That's, that's not the, kind, the way we look at it. This is the evil one. The girls are the evil, no, the girls are the good and the boys are the evil ones, you know. It's not like that. That's not the way it's looked at. It's more complex. There are distinctions between the men and the women. They're hardwired differently. From the earliest stages, the social scientists are discovering that men and women act differently in the way they process, and the differences are not because of nurture, that's one of your blanks, as much as they are because of nature. Though I'm not telling you that nurture cannot play a role. It's obvious that we can see today that nurture has played somewhat of a role in some of the things that are happening today in confusions with sexuality amongst the people you know, in our own age group, you know. There are different things related to nurture that can affect us in great ways. One of those obviously being our parents. Do you have do you have a mother and a father, both a mother and a father with you all throughout your life? Are you raised by your mom? Are you just raised by your dad? Did you have an absentee, you know, family? All these different things, they do play a role, but they are minimal compared to the the nature itself, the way that God has already made us. Sigmund Freud, he coined a few terms, if y'all have heard of him. Sigmund Freud has uh, coined some terms, and uh, uh, one of them is uh, genital uh, sexuality, and the other is affective sexuality. And what, what, he say, what he's saying is this guy, who everybody understands, is a, was a great mind and a great researcher, looked in and discovered that when you look at a male or you look at a female, you cannot have one type of sexuality. There's got to be, there's two levels here. There's the genital, that's the biological, and then there's the affective, which is the emotional and the psychological side. And both of those are fundamental to maleness and femaleness. This is something that was studied by what is called the Three Musketeers of Sexuality, that's Freud, Alder, and Young. And these are guys that are, you know, brilliant scientists. They do their studies, you know, and in the, in the midst of that, they argue with each other. And so they, you know, had lots of debates and discussions over all this stuff. And uh, the debates have gotten to the place where they're not so one-sided now. 
Um, uh, so this is something that we learn about them. It's important to note, though, that male and female are implicit to creation and carries no sexual fun function whatsoever. So, so far what we've read, male and female are implicit to creation, but that has nothing to do at this point with sexual function. When it said male and female made he them, that's just dealing with sexuality, which is different than sexual function. Then there's a verse that follows, and it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Now that's where the sex part comes in. We realize that, take it a step further, and that's there. But before that, there was just the distinction of differences in the way that we were made. There was nothing implicit in the Hebrew that refers to sexual function. So if you read that text, you'll see that. When you see male and female. Though, in our culture, there's no way that you can think that way. But if you, if you look back and you go there, you see that that, wasn't, that necessarily had nothing to do with sex. It just had to do with two differences, a type of uh, way that we were you know, made. Woman, the word woman, has to do with sexual function, but female does not. So when you see the word female, that's actually distinct from specifically sexual function, but woman, womb, man, does. Maybe that's just a little extra trivia piece for you. That's not important. But uh, uh, letter D says we are commanded to be fruitful and increase in numbers. So this is the next thing that happens. We're made male and female, distinctly different than one another, but yet there's a there's a, something that we've been commanded to do, and that's to be fruitful and to increase in number. But it was a blessing that was placed on us. He blessed us by saying this. So there's a, 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 a wonderful thing in it. Sexuality refers to expressions of our human nature in every area. Every area of life encompasses our sexuality, not just the sex part. Going on a slight tangent here with the blessing thing. Something that we learn about God's character when he said he blessed them, you look in there further, you see that he says he blessed animals too. Uh, blessed is a very fundamental term of the nature and the character of God. I just want us to see that as we look in here, that there's a lot more in the Bible about blessing than destruction. Even in the Old Testament. We often hear from others, though, that God is, is a wrathful God and fries everybody in sight when they, when they get out of line, you know. And I mean, and, and, and I can understand why you probably hear that, right? Because what are the stories that we hear? Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment upon the nations, you know, because those are cool, interesting stories, right, for us. But if you look at the rest of it, you'll see that those are, an ex those are there's not as many of those as there is all of the rest. But what blaringly comes to the front is these things because they're what everybody talks about. So God was all about blessing. There's a whole chapter on blessings in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And several times you'll see where he talks about he blessed them. God's blessings are talked about multiple times. We are blessed to do what though? Getting back on topic, we're blessed to multiply. This was a blessing God gave us to be able to do this. To be able to be creators ourselves. God enabled us to participate in the ongoing act of creation. That's pretty cool.
There's an affirmation in sexual expression, in this multiplication. There's an affirmation in the midst of it, a blessing in the midst of it, because what comes out of it is a deeper relationship, an intimacy, something that God created from, from the beginnings. But not just that. Children come out of that. The Bible says children are a gift from God. And, and not just that. He goes on further and he talks about how it is a terrible thing to stand in the way of a child. And how God reveres children and the heart of a child and all these things. But all of this comes from reproductive expression. It comes from that. Children come from that. Our intimacy together comes from that. And so there's something blessed in that that God's given us. That's why he says we are blessed to be fruitful and multiply. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Sex is not only a pleasurable thing, but it is a joy. There's a joy in it of all the, all of the things that come out of it. We share in God's likeness, which is that creative side, as we participate in the ongoing act of creation, as I jumped ahead and said that already. I'm not trying to get gross, but this is, this is true. God has placed a reminder in a woman of the beauty of the ongoing act of creation in a once-a-month situation that occurs for them. Think about it. It's a gift of a reminder. <laughs> of a reminder that there's something that God did in you that no other man could have or do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's something I could tell you that I would say is a gift that guys would say, I don't want that gift. <laughs> okay. We can see that God's creation, and that's your underline, God's creation, we can see that God's creation is bursting with the urge to create life. Everything about His creation is seeking to create life. Seed-bearing plants, throwing their seeds, continual you know, growth of, of uh, you know, the animal kingdom as well as our own humanity. There is something in us that makes us want to create life and it was fashioned by God. Each produces after its own kind, as it says. But something is different about us because humankind was given authority. We were given the authority to rule over the earthbound creation. That's something none of the others got. We were given authority to rule. I understand that this has not necessarily been a great situation in the way that we have taken care of the world. And oftentimes this is maybe by some people, uh, they look and they say, man, I wish that wasn't, that wasn't given to us because we've really made an awful mess of things. And if God didn't do that, the world wouldn't be in such a mess. But I want you to understand that that came with a responsibility. That's not God's fault that things are the way they are. It's ours. <laughs> and so it's our responsibility to do what we should with what God's given us. And we think about it. We've been given the authority to rule, but we're not the king, are we? God is the king. He is the one in charge of it all. But we are regents representing him. And sometimes we just need to look and go, how am I representing in this area when it comes to taking care of what God's given us? And I know that we're going to be held accountable for it. So we need to think about how we can 
be a part of protecting what God's given us. Then in chapter 2, with this responsibility to rule, we're given this caring responsibility over a garden. Again, nurturing and our responsibility to be thinking about how we can help things grow and help things produce in a good way, not to just sit back and just consume. And the truth of the matter is lack of care for the creation that God's given us, the lack of care for the creation that God's given us is sin against our Creator. We just have to get to that, back to that for ourselves. We're His image bearers, right? We're His image bearers. We've been given an assignment to represent Him to our world. And we have an assignment to take care of what He's made. So when God says to both male and female these things, we have an awesome responsibility. He says multiply. He says rule. And He says care. All three of those are important. And there's no distinction between male or female as to who does it. We are both responsible to do these things. Letter E, we're created and formed by God and He gives us life with His breath. This is moving into chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living living being. It's awesome. We couldn't be here lest it be because of the artist, lest it be because of the creator, lest it be because of God himself. There's nothing we could do to be here unless he put us here. In Colossians, we discover that everything is held together by the command of God's word. God's word is powerful. He breathed into us his word and we became a living being. God himself holds together, holds us together and sustains us. God formed us, then he breathed, and then we became a living being. Everything that God created is held together by his words. When you get deeper in the study, though, you get more perplexed. When you get deeper into the study of all the stuff that we look at in the world and the science of how things are made, at first it's like, okay, we can explain this one. You know, it's positive and negative charges connecting, and, you know, we can deal with that level. But you get in deeper and deeper and deeper into microbiology and molecular, all these different things that get real deeper. You know, I'm not a scientist. (laughs) You know, when you look into that, you start realizing that even the scientists themselves are perplexed and can't quite figure out how it happens. In fact, it's almost like the opposite should be true. The deeper they come in, they look and they go, hold on, this ain't making sense. How does this hold together? The rules aren't working like they were before. And I believe that, again, that's God's way. This is apologetic in, 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 in what I'm saying. This is God's way of saying, I did it. And it holds together by my word. And nothing you can try to do in explaining it away is going to out-explain the fact that I was in charge of it. And I still am in charge of it. As we look at the completeness of who we are, there's been a debate over soul and spirit. And there's this Greek, Paul addressing the Greeks, he used body, soul, and spirit in, in, uh, in Scripture. And the reason why he uses that is because 
That's what they understood. They understood things like that. But when you look at the Hebrew understanding, as those last week that were here would know, you realize that we are a singularity. We are one. There is no separations. It's, it's just a distinguishing way of discussing things, but the reality is God made us in one completeness. And, and throughout the Old Testament, you would see that we are seen as a singularity. But because we do deal with culture, and, and culture uh, that was being encountered at the time was Greek, we started to get into some confusion with body, soul, and spirit. And then there's this, this dichotomy that's go- going about, about, well, how, are we waging war against our, our parts? And, you know, can I control this? Or is this part, you know, going to defeat me? And all these other kind of things. And uh, we got this uh, confusion about the body being either an evil thing or a superfluous thing. If it's evil, then we got to beat it into submission, right? You've, you've read the scriptures in there, you know, I beat my body in submission, that kind of thing, the idea of asceticism, and of course that was taken to extremes in um, uh, the, time, the sub-apostolic period that was taken to extremes. People would actually literally beat their body to try to put themselves into control. Obviously that's not what God wants to do is abuse ourselves. But, you know, this is the reaction that comes. And then, and, and, and so when it comes to Sin our lives is something we wrestle with that. If we were to put that into understanding for ourselves, well, can I fight this thing? Or am I just defeated? Superfluous is to say, I can't win. I'm just going to be defeated. There's nothing I can do about this. So really what it is is, my spirit seeks God, but my flesh will always falter, and so I'm just going to continue to give myself the responsibility to fall. It's, it's basically something I can't control. These Gnostic ideas promoted dualism. And I promise you I'm making a point here. They, they created a dualism, and the, the reality there was there's this warring going on. And so if we look at a dualism like that, we go within ourselves, we're incomplete. We're, we're just all these different pieces, but we're one. We're a singularity. There's only one duality that was created. One. Male and female. Male and female. We aren't a dichotomy. We are a singularity, but the duality between humanity itself is male and female. Genesis is clear that there's no difference between the inner you and the outer you. Now, this duality isn't a contentious duality. It's not this battle, you know, battle of the sexes kind of thing. Though I'm sure we feel we feel that battle, you know, uh, on, a, on a regular basis, you know, that whole thing about men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Excuse me, women are from Mars. Whatever! <laughs> what is it? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. That's right. And so you kind of look in there and you're just like, I'm never going to understand this woman. You know? That, that, you know, girl, whatever. But really, we're not upset with one another. There's not a contentiousness there, or shouldn't be. What's really happening is we're just going, I'm very perplexed. There is this amazing difference that I can't quite get that confuses me about all this. But I'm not hating her, and she's not hating me. In reality, men and women, they are attracted towards one another. So it's not a contentiousness. Who did that? Is that me? (laughs) Turn that off. Sorry. So, um, just a second, because I just lost my place here. Okay, here we are. Here we step into, there's male and female now. They're separated. God's breathed the breath of life into them. They become, an, become animated. 
We've learned a little bit about the fact that we're whole and we're complete, a singularity. Then in 2.18, there is this, it's not good that man should be alone. Now hold on, we just all of a sudden went backwards and started over again, right? Because we already created man and woman. But now we're saying it's not good that man be alone. And that's the thing that we, you know, we understand about chapter 1 and chapter 2 is one will go through and tell the story. And then chapter 2 will expound further on the story of Adam and of Eve. And this is what we're expounding upon here, is the story of how woman came into the picture. It's not good that man should be alone. So God, from the very beginning, is already thinking in terms of relationships, and He relates to His creation. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, and then all of a sudden, it's not good. <laughs> God is saying it's not good? This is, a, this is serious. This is a serious problem. He realized that something is missing, something very important, something fundamental is missing here when he takes a step to bring in this suitable, suitable helper or helper suitable. Suitable. What does it mean? Suitable means literally means like opposite him. Like, opposite him. Compatible and complementary, but not him. If that makes any sense to you. Anybody need clarity on that or are you good? Kind of like a man and a woman. They're like you, but they're not you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so suitable. That's what that is saying. That it's uh, it's it's complicated, but it it makes sense. You know, we are like we're mankind. We are opposite maleness and femaleness, complementary maleness and femaleness, made to complement, suitable. This is the way it was said. This is the way it was done. So this meant that Adam had a need. Adam was not complete enough himself. Adam had a need. And all the guys say amen. <laughs> but this works against the all-sufficient male model of today. The tough guy image. I can stand alone. I am content. I am confident. I can handle this myself. John Wayne is not the image of Adam. You know? The country guy that seems to all-sufficiently handle it all himself. Or we get into Stone Cold Steve Austin or whatever that guy's name is, you know? Yeah. Ah, you know? Those kind of guys. The Rock. All of them. Come on. They're suckers. They're sitting there going, I have a need. I really do. <laughs> you know, they may look like they're tough. They got all that. But they have a need, okay? <laughs> God sought to bless Adam. This is something amazing, too. God's in relationship with man. God's in relationship with man. He loves us. And so he sought to bless Adam. As he saw this fundamental need, something was not good. He loves and he meets his need. Now, this next word that I'm going to get at has caused all kinds of problems. And if you look at it from the wrong definition, then you're going to just, you're totally going to take it off and you're, you're, going, to, you're going to get upset. But it's not, it's not, my fault that it's taken that way and it's not God's fault. It's people's fault. 
You know, for some reason, people tend to be a lot of times the brunt of the problems. And definitions can really get ugly sometimes when we take it wrong. So, here we have this. All right, woman, you're my helper. You're supposed to do this for me. Go clean the laundry for me. Do this right there, right? Take care of the chillings, you know? All that kind of stuff. This, this redneck concept, okay? When you look at the word helper, when you look at the word helper, you, you sometimes have in mind this thing that basically is saying, ah, oh, ain't no way I'm that helper. You know, I'm not that helper to that guy. What you talking about? You ain't going to dominate me. But see, the truth is, it's because that word has been read in wrongly. The word's been read in by the thought of inferiority, weakness, and subordination. Right? When you think about that kind of stuff, mentality that, that, you, that, you, that you hear uh, going through, uh, sadly, sometimes the church, it's this concept of inferiority, weakness, and subordination. Okay? But that's not what it means. That's not what it means at all. And so that can encourage you, you, you ladies. Because if you look at the word helper there and how people have misinterpreted that, and even like I said, some of the church folk have even misinterpreted that by saying, you know, the man's dominating and all this other kind of stuff, and the woman's sort of just kind of, yes, sir, you know, that kind of thing. Um, here we have, and what do you think, I mean, feminist responses are? Stuff like this, saying, uh-uh, you know, but that's, the thing is, this is because it's been read wrong. And so when you look at it to be read, read right, you can easily find that out by challenging Hosea 13.9. Hosea 13.9 uses the very same word, helper. Okay? But guess who the helper is in Hosea 13.9? What? Man. God. Yeah, okay. God. Okay? God himself is called by the exact word, that exact word helper, the same way it's used, it's the same way it's used in Hosea 13.9, and God is called a helper there. So now I get to ask you a question. If the two are supposed to mean the same thing, can God be subordinate, weak, or inferior? Oh, no. Not at all. So we just solved a, a, a debate that's been debated over, you know, a long time just now. Just so you know, it's done. Uh, but, but the reason why the debate exists is because nobody wants to look at the definitions. Nobody really wants to look at the, at the proper context. They just want it to be what they want it to be. And that's why the argument continues with some. People aren't willing to study enough to find out the meaning of words. And we need to. We need to be good studies of God's words so that we don't fall for that kind of stuff. A lot of times what's called a problem text is something that people just haven't looked deep enough to look into. They haven't looked at a complementary scripture that kind of clarifies and makes more sense of it. Because the Bible never contradicts itself, ever. It always complements. And so where you think you see a contradiction, you need to find out how you're reading it. Because that's where the problem lies. So we shouldn't get angry about this because it just wasn't looked at properly. The anger that you should have should not be at God, but at humanity. But just remember, you should be angry and sin not. So don't sin against humanity because of it. <laughs> just let it drive you to do something different and live a different way so they can see it works. Helper, though, is also not about superiority. He needed me. Now, if he didn't have me, he'd be nothing. No, helper's not about superiority at all. It's only that the person is inadequate without the other. If I didn't have this helper, I would be inadequate without that help. 
and that it, it doesn't imply a difference between the helper and the one that is helped. That, that's your, your, your underline there. It only means answer to immediate need. It only means that. Answer to immediate need. Adam had a need. Answer to immediate need. Helper suitable. Eve. So if the woman is to help the man, then wouldn't the opposite be true as well? The man is also to help the woman. We can see that within context, that that would be true. Eve and Adam then are mutually helpers of one another. Eve and Adam are mutually helpers of one another. So this is about, this is a, a strange statement, but it's really, really deep. It, 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 it's powerful impact. Here it is. This is about mutuality with compatibility with acknowledgement of differentiation. It's about mutuality with compatibility with acknowledgement of differentiation. In other words, mutually, we are man. Male and female makes man. Man cannot stand alone unless it be male and female. We are compatible. All the stuff that I already said, biological, psychological, all the things that connect us and all that. Okay? Compatible. Make babies. All of it. Okay? Compatible. And then... Acknowledgement of differentiation. But I am a male, and therefore there's certain things about me that are not what you're about. We're just different in these different ways. When I was a little boy, I liked to, you know, take sticks and turn them into swords, and that was my thing, you know. But y'all, not so much. I'm not going to say y'all played with dolls, but probably most of you did at some, in some point with them. So, because I know there's tomboys out there, but there's still those, diff those very fundamental differentiations. Does that make sense? You cool? All right. Uh, let's uh, take a, a break for a second to go to the, pot, the restroom. <laughs> I have kids, okay? <laughs> okay, cool. Awesome. All right, well, uh, we're back. We're back now. Everybody's taking their restroom break. And um, I, I want you to know this. You know, like, I know I'm talking this stuff right now, but... The important thing is that this creates a, a dialogue and discussion, and, that, and so if there's things you want to discuss with me afterwards or at the end, uh, feel free to disagree with me, and we can talk it through, you know, because I think it's important that we talk. I want there to be a discussion because I want us to come to discover truth, and I believe that through discussion we do. We do ultimately come to truth in Christ, and so I'm not... Um, I'm not in, uh, scared, you know, to have someone say, well, I don't agree with that, or here, can you clarify here, explain this a little bit better. I'm, I'm cool with it. All right, so I just said that really profound statement and explained it, mutuality with compatibility with acknowledgement of differentiation. Say that three times fast. And um, now we're at the, the unfolding of Adam's story. He had a need... What's the story? What's it like? Uh, how, how, does it, how is it important to us? You know, Adam's out here, and you have to think about it. If you want to you just take it apart and look at what it really would be like to be Adam. He's naming the animals, and he's naming all of them. And every animal comes through, you know, and he's sitting there, and he's naming them. He's like, you will be duck-billed platypus. That's you. 
<laughs> Don't know how he did it, but he just, that's it. That's what works for me. And uh, so we have this, but as he's doing that, he's looking at these animals. He's going, hmm, something's missing. I, I, I'm looking for this helper. I, I need something. I need something suitable. But he doesn't know what it is, and he can't figure it out, you know? It's like that song, you know, you hear from you too, you know? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You know, it's just like sitting there the whole time. And there's this video and Adam's running from animal to animal. I have checked out all the animals, you know. And he's doing all this. He's like, I can't find it. You know, it ain't working. And uh, now, <laughs> the point is, <laughs> this connection he's looking for, this thing that he's missing, isn't coming to make sense here. And so recognize that in this there's a response and, and uh, you know, God says he's going he's gonna, to, you know, he's going to put him to sleep and he's going to take his rib out and all that kind of stuff. Just know there is no such thing as man really having less of a rib. That's all just a, a myth, just so you know. That's not true. Again, another reason to show how it's poetry and how it explains to us fundamental truths, very important truths, but let's not take everything literally because if you find, you'll discover you, 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 you're not missing a rib. Okay, but there's something powerful about that that we see because she's a part of him. But anyway, with this, we're looking in here. He's looking around. He can't find it. He's trying to figure it out. God does this thing with the, with the putting him to sleep because basically Adam's scared to death to let him cut him open while he's, while he's awake, you know. So he's like, yeah, I'll knock you out. We're going to have to do this surgery. So, you know, here we got this, this, this image of God basically saying there's harmony and there's intimacy connected between these two because she came from from out of him there's a sharing something unique and something powerful in that imagery Um, ancient Israel understood the idea of relationship with harmony and intimacy so this would just be a very um, uh, a good way of explaining it is this particular way that they wrote uh, the poetry here this, there's this crescendo, though, that's building throughout all of creation. And the crescendo occurs when Eve gets on the picture. Because Adam has a need. Oh, it's not good. He's been looking. He can't find what he's looking for. And then all of a sudden, God says, Ah, I know what to do. And he does this thing, and he presents Eve to Adam and Adam's response, you know, is, whoa, man, you know, but, you know, that, but not really, actually, you know, but that's a, that's, that's a joke people use sometimes, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised that he did think that way, you know, but, you know, Adam's response is this, it's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she's bone of my bone and she's flesh of my flesh. Now, he's not sitting there saying, yeah, because of the rib thing, that's why, no, He's he's sitting there going, wow, this is it. This is what I was looking for. This is like me, but opposite me, compatible in every way. This is what I've been looking for. Eve, this is it. She's it. And, uh, And so there's something powerful there. But when we look at that context, the context of that scripture, actually, if you were to really put it in there, uh, you know, when you look at uh, most uh, texts, it says bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But if you're really going to look at it within the ultimate uh, reality of the context, it's saying, finally, this is. As in, all the other stuff wasn't it. 
But this is. She's the one. And you got to just think about the relief in Adam, the excitement within Adam, the new beginning within Adam about finding like I'm not alone anymore in this world. God's made a suitable helper, someone who's going to be there because I need her. You know? Now, I'm not talking about codependency and bad stuff like that, okay? I'm just talking about the reality is that God did make man for woman and woman for man. Uh, letter G, woman was created from the rib of Adam. We see this. And what does that say? Well, Adam's need for help was more than just food. It was more than just clothing. It was more than lodging. It was something else. There was something deeper. Ancient Israel, they held marriage, because that's really what this text is it was explaining for Israel, is marriage. Ancient Israel, they held marriage as a relationship between harmony and intimacy, as I said. But now that you're blank. But this is what it should be. Harmony and intimacy. No one dominates. It's the imagery of that. Yes, she was made a suitable helper, but she's what I was waiting for. And what I was wanting and needing. There was something in me that longed for her. So Adam's response to Eve, as I said before, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So what we see here is that God was the first matchmaker. Wasn't it? He was the first matchmaker. And I think that we can look in there and we can realize that God is a great matchmaker. How about we let God, as he did with Adam, match Adam to Eve for whoever it is he has for us. Let God be the matchmaker. We see this idea of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh in other parts of the Old Testament. And Genesis 29.14 expresses that as well. But there's a, there's a deepness of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It is... Reflect, it's, a, it's a reflective reality and a revelation. Because what's happening is the Hebrews are sitting there and they're sharing the way that they understand kinship. And so when, when Adam says this, he's basically saying, she is my kin. This is the connection. This is how deep that connection is. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, yet we are two separate people. We are also kin to one another. We are blood related. That kind of depth of kinship amongst those connections. It's, it's, it's definitely something spiritual you have, you, you have to see because you can't say that the person you're marrying is blood related. I hope that. Hope not, really, in real life. You know? uh, but the reality being that's the depth of kinship. Isn't that the deepest bond, blood? The deepest blonde is, is, is family. Like, you know, I talk to people that have real issues with, you know, backgrounds and stuff that they've seen with their family. And, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, this is what's going on, this is the mess that's going on. But, you know, we're, we're blood. I love them. And it doesn't matter what, but it's like there's still a deep connection that's there. And God's trying to express to us in this particular passage, bone my bone, flesh my flesh, that this reality of this relationship between male and female in that covenant of marriage is like they're blood related. 
That's the way it should be seen. There's nothing closer. The text that follows is uh, 2.24. And this is interesting because if you look at Genesis 2.24, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, at first you have God speaking, the, 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 the unfolding of the poems and the poetry, but then all of a sudden you have a pullback from that, and now the writer's speaking. The writer stepped out and says, for this reason, the fact that man was made for woman, woman made for man, that there's that singularity in the, in the, separate, uh, in the separation of them, and then together there's a complementing, and it's been created by God. In the midst of this, there is... Um, uh, what the heck am I talking about? Somebody stared at me and got me lost. <laughs> so, anyways, in the, in the midst of this, there is a going to be a moment in which this ties into an experience, which is, which is marriage, okay? <laughs> this carries us into the power of the covenant relationship of marriage. All right? <laughs> and so when we look at it, we have that text. What do we see? Leave is a big word. United is a big word. Become one flesh is a big word. As we Let's unpack that. So, in letter A, it's leave his father and his mother and become one flesh. Note that leave is not an absolute leaving. That's your, your underline. But see... This leaving that they're talking about is not saying never see your mother and father again, leave them forever and go to a faraway country. You know? Excuse me. It's not that. It's talking about a realigning of one's priorities. Your priority was your parents at that time. But now your priority is to another. Now you're still always going to be there with your family, but you're realigning your priorities to this other person in your life that you're committing to in covenant, this female or male, depending on who's the one getting married. So leaving is what it means to be married and to be moved into a special relationship. I'm moving into a completely different relationship than what I knew before. It's much more than making babies or working around the house. That's not what the leaving is. It's so much deeper than that. It's companionship. It's kinship, it's belonging, it's family. Because from all of this comes this concept of family. And then from family came tribes. And then from tribes came culture. And then all of a sudden, fundamentally, what we have is community. The nature of community is wrapped up in this maleness and femaleness and in this covenant that creates So the most highly exalted community in the Old Testament is the family. We see this. But then the most highly exalted community in the New Testament is the family of Christ. And so we have this sort of typing, type and shadowing of something that is to come. The family is important, but ultimately there is a family that God has created us to be a part of in a new birth, the family of Christ. Not everybody's married in the New Testament. Okay? They're still sexual people. And they, they also still had needs. But there are single people also. 
in the New Testament. We don't see that expressed in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament we do have a guy named Paul who seems to be very happy with being single. (laughs) That's his thing. But recognize, though, that Christ showed the community as a part of the fulfillment of that single person's relationship to where they found health. And so there was still a connection and still uh, a relating necessary. Because I don't want to say that everybody's supposed to be married if, you know, because reality is if the Lord leads you to be single or you want to be single, then that's a desire God placed in your heart and you have the right to do so. But most of us <laughs> will be married. Guarantee that one. We have to understand, though, that when we make this covenant, when we leave, okay, that we can never turn back. And this is a problem that is that occurs even today. Never, ever marry a person who isn't ready to get rid of their singleness. Because that is going to create a serious problem. The leaving is so essential. When you... Marry a person that's willing to let go of that, then they're willing to enter that new relationship, never to turn back, then you're not going to have the regrets that lead people to eventually getting divorced because they want to do their own thing again. I have committed to this. I'm not wanting to be single, ever. I don't want to go back there. I've gone here, I'm going to stay. And so leaving is very, very important. We have to be ready to live a new priority of life together. That's, that's the importance of leaving. It's a supernatural work of God that happens uh, when we do covenant together uh, in marriage. God spoke it in His Word that He can make it happen. So when we leave, He can create one out of two, but will you surrender fully to leave so that He can do it? Couples often fail in the realigning of their priorities. That's why I'm talking about this. They forget the fundamental change of the two becoming one, trying to function still as selfish individuals. You don't have room to function as a selfish individual anymore when you're married. You know, I get people telling me all the time, I'm whipped. I'm glad I am, I guess. You know, that terminology, the negative terminology, you know, whipped supposedly means that... uh, you, uh, you have no control to be a man and choose what you want to do and say, you know, woman, this is the way it's going to be and you're just going to be okay with that this time. But I like to talk to my wife and I like to find out what is it, is she okay with this, you know? And sometimes I'm doing something fun and she says, I need you. And I'm like, oh, I got to go. And the guys go, oh, yeah, we know, you're whipped, you know? But, you know, what, whatever. I think that that's what we need to get used to is saying, hey, she's valuable to me, to put myself in a position to end up um, being looked at differently by the guys. (laughs) The next word is cleave. So leave the father and mother, be united to the wife, or cleave to your wife, depending on the translation that you have. And this was completely related to sexual intercourse. Completely related to sexual intercourse. The covenant of marriage was ultimately finalized after intercourse in Hebrew marriage. And it is also the way that we should see it too. So the cleaving is the moment of the covenant being finalized. That we are going to make this thing real and make this thing happen. And that's another reason why it's important that we not flippantly see sex as something that casually can happen at any given time. And yell, well, you know, I can... I can start over and then I'm going to, you know, want to get married. If you can try 
to protect. If you can protect your virginity until then, there's something powerful in that. That God has created as a covenant connection. And of course, for, for those of us that aren't there, you still have an opportunity to start over. But I mean, to start over from now and say, at this point, I'm really going to see it differently. You know? This is a serious deal. But the cleaving was powerful. It was the moment of covenant. It was a glue, it's like gluing together. One, one uh, um, commentary says it's like the gluing together of two pieces of paper. You ever done that? You glue together two pieces of paper and you let it dry? You can't take that apart. That's the power of it. It's, there's a uniting that can never be taken apart in this. And that uniting had to do with sexual intercourse. That was a consummation of it. It was word, and then it was deed. Then they became one flesh. Not until then, but they became one flesh in that moment. So the next one, one flesh, it's multifaceted. It joins heart, mind, and body. It refers to kinship and the covenant of full-bodied expression. I talked a lot about the kinship, so I'm going to skip over some of that. But recognize this. Our need as single people is more fundamental than just sexual. And the culture doesn't let us see that. I think the culture just kind of just puts us in this whole situation of attraction and sexuality that's all related to uh, the biological act and, and the, this is the whole thing and this is what we're looking for and this is where it's all going to go and this is how we show our love and all this. And That's just a teeny bitty tip of the, of the picture. And besides, that's not even supposed to be there until the covenant. So fundamentally, we need to understand all these other things that I've talked about and know how to healthily deal with that um, so that we don't get off-based. So what does this tell us, period? Our sexuality, while it can be can, can incorporate sexual intimacy, it's more profound than that, right? It's more profound. What it is is implicit to what it means to be male and female at every level and recognizing those differences and celebrating them and recognizing why we're made differently and the value of that compatibility in it. It's God's blessing to create community. He created us male and female for community so we could create community. Recognizing that we're created uniquely different in the midst of this. Equal in dignity, but different in roles and service. Now next week, we're going to get into deeper stuff. And, uh, you know, foundations, you got to get there first. Next week, we're going to talk about the difference between sexual desire and the desire for sex. So that's next week. Sexual desire, the differences between sexual desire and the desire for sex.